As we stand, let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray that once again, by the power of your spirit, you would speak to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever thought, wouldn't it be great to go back in time and be part of the early church when everything was new and fresh and exciting, when all the Christians agreed with each other and lived in unity and there weren't any divisions? Okay, <laughs> that, that is kind of wishful thinking, isn't it? It's just never been the reality. Sadly, the church has been plagued with divisions and disagreements from the very start. Listen to what St. Paul says. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. Why did he need to write like that? Because the church in Corinth was not united, but had numerous different factions within it. If we think there will ever come a day when we will all agree about everything as Christians, we are fooling ourselves. Because the problem is that the church is made up of people like me and people like you. Between us, we're pretty highly opinionated. People who are at many different stages of our lives and our Christian maturity. We're people who make mistakes or hurt each other. And frankly, we're prone to simply mess up. So until Jesus comes again, we're going to have to live with some imperfection. Well, this morning, I want us to take a look at this passage from 1 Corinthians to understand what the issues causing division at Corinth were and what we can learn from them. Clearly, there were some personality cults emerging. Paul makes reference to four different factions First, there was the I belong to Paul party. For many, Paul was the one who'd brought them to faith, and they were forever grateful and loyal, but to a fault. And sadly, many a church congregation has experienced that kind of factionalism. So, for example, when there's a change in leadership, there may be those who would always be harping back to the good old days when the previous leader was present. Now, it's possible, because we're a pretty sophisticated bunch, to couch our disagreements in lofty theological terms, when in reality, sometimes what is happening is simply that there's a personality clash, which in turn is a poor excuse for failing to do the work of building relationships in and amongst the body of Christ. And what can happen is that a church can even divide with both sides convinced that they are right and that they hold the theological high ground when the truth is each side has refused to allow God's love and grace to melt hard hearts. Well, second, there was the I belong to Apollos party. Now, we don't know a lot about Apollos, but in the book of Acts, we learn that he was from the highly respected university city of Alexandria in Egypt. He knew his Bible, was an excellent speaker, was enthusiastic and a very bold evangelist. It's possible that Apollos had become the champion for an intellectual elite. Or maybe he was the yardstick by which all other preachers were judged. We don't know. But as soon as we put someone, anyone, on that kind of a pedestal, we're heading for trouble. Well, thirdly, there was the I belong to Peter party. 
And this may have represented some sort of Jewish Christian grouping. There were a number of legalistic practices in the church at Corinth, especially surrounding food laws and whether or not you could eat food offered to idols. It's possible that the, you know, the freedom that is ours in Christ can produce in some a kind of backlash or reaction of legalism. Maybe it's because we find grace so difficult to embrace that we slip back into law and rules and try and hedge everything in to make it feel safe. But that's a dangerous place for a church to be in. And then fourthly, there was the I belong to Christ party. Now, that's a bit more difficult. I mean, that's really the trump card, isn't it? If you say, well, I'm in the Jesus party, how do you challenge that one? It's a bit difficult to, to interpret and understand, and, and in some ways we have to speculate exactly what it was about, but I can't help wondering whether this was a group that had become rather super spiritual. And it's possible, we, we see it in our day, that Christians may reject the leadership and, and authority in a church and will simply appeal to having had a word from the Lord. Now, I still believe very much that God guides and speaks and directs. But if someone comes and says, well, God's told me this, that's quite difficult to, to respond to. And it's not just one extreme of the church or the other that does this. You might encounter that in a very conservative, fundamentalist-type person who says, ah, the Lord has told me. Or you might find it in a more liberal, progressive-type person. They might couch it slightly differently, they might simply say, well, the Spirit's leading us into new truth. And, and so there's this desire to use experience as the new yardstick for discerning what is right. And there are certainly those who claim the name of Jesus to embrace things which the Bible says we should not embrace. Well, these divisions at Corinth were serious enough for Paul to challenge them. He didn't say, oh, well, never mind, you'll always have divisions. It doesn't really matter. Just do the best you can to get along. No, he appeals for a unity, a, a unity of mind and of purpose. And this unity is based on the person and the work of Jesus. What we believe about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done by the cross is what, in the end, will either divide us or unite us. And it's that that sets the purpose for what he has called us. The idea that Jesus is merely another prophet among many, a good example, a religious hero, a way to God but not the only way, cannot sit side by side with the biblical account of Jesus as the one who alone is the way and the truth and the life. And the call to each person, as we saw in the gospel, to repent and to follow Jesus. And if Jesus died on the cross only as a great martyr and moral example, but he never actually rose from the grave, then there is no power in the gospel. Yet the truth we proclaim is that Jesus died for a particular purpose, to secure salvation for a lost and dying world. And this truth is proved by his resurrection, demonstrating his victory over sin and death and hell. I think at the heart of the matter in Corinth, with all their disagreements and their, their different parties and factions, was actually a clash of worldviews. On the one hand, there was the good news of the gospel. 
And on the other, there was worldly wisdom. And you know, not much has changed 2,000 years on. This is the same type of clash of views that we experience in our culture. There's no shortage of worldly wisdom for us, surrounded as we are by the great universities, medical school and law schools in Pittsburgh. But for all that is so good and wise and helpful in these great places of learning, worldly wisdom alone is not enough when it comes to facing life's ultimate questions and our own deepest needs. Now, the specific divisions in our church context and our culture may not be exactly the same as those in first century Corinth, but the underlying causes of those divisions may not be so different. Now, within our church, we don't have disagreements about eating meat offered to idols. But we don't all agree about other aspects of our worship, whether it's our music or our liturgy or whatever it might be. And within the wider culture, as well as within the church, we know only too well how much something as important and profound as human sexuality continues to cause profound divisions in our midst. How we face these very real questions presents us with a challenge and a temptation. The challenge is how will we engage with division in the church and in the world? The temptation can be to rely only on our own skillful arguments to make our case. That's certainly a temptation for me, as one who likes to be right, who likes to argue and thinks he's pretty good at it. But, you know, the older I get, the more I'm reminded that I don't always have to defend my viewpoint or make my case or, worse, argue someone else into a corner to pr prove that I'm right. More often than not, I will do better to listen more than talk, to seek to understand rather than to explain and demonstrate more compassion than conviction. And this doesn't mean that I'm discarding biblical truth. But at the end of the day, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The power of the Holy Spirit. The power of God's word. The power of God's love and grace and mercy. And of course, the real danger of too many words is that one of two things can happen. Either people will simply glaze over and tune out our arguments for the gospel... Or others may not feel able to engage with words, fearing that to do so is like stepping into a debating chamber, or worse, a courtroom. Let me say this. If, if you've ever felt on the receiving end of any of that from me, then I'm very sorry. But how are we to face divisions in the, in the church and in the world. Well, I think we need to take a leaf out of St. Paul's book. Notice how this section draws to a close in verse 17. Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to proclaim the gospel with eloquent wisdom, 
So instead of eloquent wisdom, Paul pleads something else, something which to many then and many today will seem like utter foolishness. He pleads the cross of Christ. At the heart of the matter is not clever arguments, but a cross. And the cross, that dreadful instrument of torture and death, has a power of its own. And sadly, to those who are perishing, it is sheer foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And we have a choice. Either we can put our trust in the world's wisdom, or we can depend upon the power of the cross. But what does that mean? What does it mean to put our trust in the power of the cross? Well, I think it means at least or in part this. It means instead of relying on our own wisdom and our own strength, we can admit that we are not the autonomous, invincible individuals we might like to think that we are, or even that the world sometimes tells us we are. Putting our trust in the power of the cross means saying that we need help. It's only when we come to the end of ourselves, to the end of our intellect, our cleverness, our schemes and our strivings, that we arrive at the foot of the cross. I never cease to be amazed, sometimes when I look in the mirror or as I listen to other people's stories, at just how foolish we can all be. As we will do anything, it seems, to avoid facing the truth. How often do we fall into the false wisdom of trying harder, working harder, running harder, hiding harder, avoiding harder? It's all so sad, so pitiful. For there's no lasting power in our worldly wisdom or our self-help schemes. Only through the cross do we find the real power of God. The power that is able to save us, to heal us, to restore us. You know, when you kneel at the foot of the cross, you will find it's a very leveling place. Be you a president or a pauper, powerful or powerless, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You must choose earthly wisdom or the power of the cross. And I pray that we will never be seduced into denying this great power. The good news of the cross of Jesus is good news for everyone. Jesus didn't just die for Christians. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus died for the world. He died for the Hindu and the Muslim, for the Jew and the atheist. He died for everyone here this morning. You have a choice. Eloquent, worldly wisdom or the power of the cross. When you stand before God, as every one of us will, will you plead your theological credentials, the books you've read, your service to others, your sound faith, your good works, or will you trust only in the power of the cross? and in Jesus who gave his life for you. You have a choice. Worldly wisdom or the love and grace and mercy of God in Christ. And it's at the foot of the cross 
that we encounter and experience and can know this love and this mercy and this forgiveness. Those things that divide us, and some of them are very real and very difficult, won't ultimately be won or lost by the best arguments or the greatest words of wisdom or by decisions of bishops or courts, but only by the power of the cross. For though the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, it is salvation to those who are being saved. I pray that today we may grow closer to the cross and to the one who gave his life on that cross for us. And as that happens, that the walls of division would come tumbling down within the church and within the world. Amen.